And welcome to Racing Through Time, a NASCAR retrospective podcast. Say that three times real fast. This is that a podcast. Three times real fast. Yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast covering the 1986 NASCAR Winston Cup season. And Andy Waddell with Ricky Wittenberg here. We call Andy the Hot Pocket from a previous uh, adventure that we used to be on. And I have no nickname. I don't think I need one. But uh, Andy. It is good to have you on for this project. We are going to, uh, you're probably going to be on most of the episodes, I would presume. And as your host, uh, Ricky Wittenberg, I am a writer for onpitroad.com. And I think some of the On Pit Road staff will be on some of the episodes. We're also going to have another friend, uh, Justin Edgel, the keyboard hero. He's going to be on from time to time as well. But this podcast, Andy... We started kicking it around uh, a few months ago thinking, at least in my opinion, the reason I wanted to do this is I think we're in that weird age group where we're not young, but we're not old. I mean, we're old to some people, but but we grew up like we were six years old, both of us, in 1986. So this is a season that we grew up with. We've been NASCAR fans our entire lives, but when you're six years old, you're out digging in the dirt and eating worms. You don't remember a lot of the NASCAR stuff. So even us going back right now and rewatching this, I can say with certainty for this Daytona 500 show, I know way more than I ever did about 1986 in just the research we did for this first show. Oh, yeah, just the first show. I mean, we went back and looked at all this stuff and... Just some of the names that you see on here, you see them when they're young, when they're first starting out, you know, Rookie of the Years, Kenny Schrader, he's just starting out here. Tim Richmond's just coming into his own. Earnhardt's only been in there, what, six, seven years at this point. It's a whole other world, and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, yeah. And uh, so in this show, um, we've plugged it on a couple of uh, social media outlets on our Twitter pages. This show is going to be a history lesson, but we're also going to have fun. So what I've got to tell people right up front is leave your feelings at the door. We're going to make fun of a lot of this stuff. And guys, it's again, it, this is just all, if, you, if you're familiar with wrestling, we are kayfabing. This is all bull crap. We're just having fun. So if we make fun of your favorite driver, it's okay because we're just having a good time doing this show. Um, we want to bring you a history lesson, but we don't want to bore you to death at the same time. Exactly. I mean, you know, we're going to make fun of every race car driver on here, except for Dale Earnhardt, because I'll stab you in the neck. But other than that, we will make fun of every single one. I guarantee it. All right. So this show is called Racing Through Time. Uh, we do have a Facebook group that we just launched. So if you type in Racing Through Time on Facebook, you can find our show. YouTube, we are going to have a YouTube channel. It's called RTT Project, and we're going to post little clips that we find of races that's just something interesting. I've got a Chris Economaki clip on there right now from the Bush Clash where he inexplicably turns into a goat. And uh, we've got a couple of other little clips already on there. Twitter, we are at RTT Project. So follow us on Twitter, and for all your motorsports news and information, go to onpitroad.com and follow On Pit Road Twitter at On Pit Road. So now that we've got the uh, sponsorship <laughs> obligations out of the way, yeah. Andy, we, we like I said, we both grew up 
in this era. We were we were kids. I think that it's important. This show is to reintroduce 1986, hopefully, to a new generation of fans that that may not appreciate the racing in the past. I've seen a lot of people, and this really kills me, on social media saying, well, how could the races in 1986 be any better when there was only three cars that finished on the lead lap? Andy, would you like to maybe give a brief rebuttal to that argument? Oh, that's simple. Right now, you have 40 cars within two seconds of each other over and over and over and over. Completely repetitive. Here, yeah, you had Earnhardt and Bodine. They were pretty much the class of the field for the start of it. They're out there. Well, back here, you've got another pack. You've got racing going on all over the track, the whole race. Not once during this rewatch did I sit there and doze off because all I see is guys going round and round and round. Yeah, they're within two inches of each other now, but there's no competition. The cars don't bounce. They're hugging the ground. You know, you can see air underneath these cars. I mean, that's what I like best about this is there's racing throughout the entire track. Yeah, and also in 1986, we did not have the Lucky Dog. We did not have waiver rounds. We did not have stage breaks. Um, no speed limit on pit no road. No speed limit on pit road. God, that's cra- that is insane. <laughs> that but, was crazy. But also in 1986, we had people have got to remember the attrition rate in NASCAR was through the friggin' roof. I mean, every race, pretty much, you would have half the field go out with broken engines or. You know, they dropped a transmission or their shifter broke and they could, I mean, there's all kind of oil leaks that sent them out. In 1986, the cars were not made bulletproof. So what we see, if the cars would have been made a lot more stable like they are now where they don't break, in 1986, even without the Lucky Dog, without the wave around, without the stage brakes, there would have been a whole lot more cars on the lead lap at these races. I think that's something... Other people also fail to remember is that the attrition rate is was through the roof. Now you have three or four cars a race maybe go out, and sometimes not even that. So it, it does skew the numbers quite a bit. Well, I mean, this is something I'll, I'll be I'll be sure and bring up throughout the season is in this in this era you didn't have CNC machining, you didn't have automated computers. You know, everything was turned usually by one or two people back in the motor shop, and they had to get uh, parts from the factory. You didn't have OEM parts that were just as good or better than the factory parts. And that's why, you know, we'll get into this later, but like engine builders, that was one of the biggest components of a good race team was who was building your engines. Yes, sir. So what we need to do right now, before we get into the Daytona 500 for 1986 and the Bush Clash, as part of the history lesson of this podcast, we are actually going to try to set up 1986 without taking two hours to do it. So let's go over, Andy, we'll go over the biggest stories that we've got in our notes here um, heading into 1986. So coming out of 1985, Daryl Waltrip was your NASCAR Winston Cup driving champion. Um driving the number 11 Junior Johnson Budweiser car. 
Bill Elliott had pretty much dominated 1985, wins the first ever Winston Million when it was offered, wins 11 races, smoked smoked everybody most every week, it seemed like, but he didn't have the consistency Waltrip did. So Elliott was the star of 85, Waltrip won the title. We head into 86, and there's some people moving around, which is is actually going to be really important. And uh, the first, the first, and one of the reasons I picked 86, honestly, was because as a kid, my favorite drivers were Daryl Waltrip and uh, Tim Richmond. And I think that a lot of the newer fans will, would just, they don't give, they don't know Richmond. And I want people to remember what a talent Tim Richmond really was. So Tim Richmond has just moved over from the number 27 Raymond Beetle car to the newly formed number 25 Folgers car. And this will give Rick Hendrick uh, two teams. You know, he's a pretty new car owner. He's going to get two teams now, though. So Richmond drove for Raymond Beetle from 1983 to 1985. He had a win in 83 and 84, but no wins in 85. Richmond finished 10th, 12th, and 11th in the points his three years driving the 27 car. So before we jump into anything else, 1986, since Tim Richmond's shining year was his lone good year, was 1986. I think we're going to talk about Richmond here a little bit. And I think one of the best ways to start talking about Richmond is this story from a former GM of Hendrick, Jimmy Johnson. This is with a Y, not the IE. Although that would be more interesting if it was the IE. Yeah, because he would have been pretty young to be the GM of Hendrick Motorsports (laughs) in 1986. I haven't done that math, but I know he's not that old. Okay, so here we go. We're going to read this story from Jimmy Johnson about Tim Richmond. When Rick Hendrick signed Tim Richmond to drive for Hendrick Motorsports, he promised to give Richmond a car from one of his dealerships to drive. Hendrick asked Jimmy Johnson to get someone to deliver an IROC Camaro to the marina in Fort Lauderdale where Richmond had a houseboat. Johnson, who had already agreed to move back to North Carolina and take over as general manager of Hendrick Motorsports, decided to handle the job himself so he could meet one of the drivers he'd be working with. I left about 6 in the morning and pulled up at the marina about 9 or something like that. Tim told me what slip his houseboat was docked in. I finally found it, and it was quiet and quiet as a mouse. I, look, I was looking and heard someone say, hey. I looked up on the deck at the top of the boat, and there was Tim in a little Speedo bathing suit. He said, come on up here. I went up there and he had maybe a six pack of beers empty and a big tray full of crab legs he had already eaten. Johnson and Richmond visited briefly and Richmond provided a tour of the boat that the manufacturer had given him in return for being a spokesman for the company. Johnson had a 1 p.m. flight back across the state to Tampa, so he asked Richmond to drive him to the airport. That, Johnson said, was a big mistake. So we go flying down the road, this six or eight lane highway with like four inch curb separating the two sides. All of a sudden he says, you want a cup of coffee? I said, I wasn't that much of a coffee drinker, but he jerked the wheel to the left and we jumped the curb running 70 or 80. The thing started sliding backwards into oncoming traffic and he slid it around, jerked it back into low gear and floored it. We're spinning the wheels going backwards. You couldn't see for the smoke. The thing took off and he went immediately back over the curb across in front of traffic and down an embankment into the parking lot of this coffee shop. Johnson looked at Richmond incredulously. 
I said, what in the hell is that all about? Tim said, they're topless. We went inside, and sure enough, it was a topless coffee shop because they had outlawed topless bars in Fort Lauderdale. So we get in, get a cup of coffee, and check out the interior. We get back in the car and go to the airport where they're doing a lot of construction work. Tim and I pull up under the parking deck, and I open the door. I've got one leg out turning to say goodbye. And as I was looking forward to working with him, but as a cab pulls up behind us, the guy blows his horn. Tim looks in the mirror, puts the car in reverse, and stomps the gas. He drills the cab. I almost broke my damn leg. It knocked the cab driver back, and he goes peeling out. Tim jerks the car out of reverse, into gear, and takes off after him, with me trying to get back in the car and shut the door. We chased the cab through the construction with the workers scattering. The cab ran a stoplight and got away from us. Tim said, I can't stand for somebody to do that to me. He then took me back and dropped me off. That was my initiation to Tim. Early the next year, as the start of the 1986 season approached, Folger sent some of its top officials and advertising representatives to Charlotte to meet with key players in the race team to plan their marketing strategies. It's a freezing cold day, Johnson said. We had a meeting that was supposed to start at 9 a.m., Harry and Rick and I show up in three-piece suits. This is our first meeting with these guys to make the game plan and talk about their expectations. It's a big meeting, and we want it to be perfect. We want to make a good first impression. We start the meeting just sort of talking, and they had concerns about Tim and his reputation. Rick telling them, I've got this covered. Tim and I have a great relationship, and I promise you I am going to clean him up. Tim shows up half an hour late. He walks in and he's got on these big fur coat and after ski boots with fur around the tops, just ugly looking things. He takes the fur coat off and throws it across the table. Under that, he had on a t-shirt that said something like eat more posse and a pair of jogging shorts that were cut up the side. Tim goes and sits at the head of the table, throws his legs up on the table. Everything just fell out. Rick and Harry and I were saying, oh my God, Andy, that is Tim Richmond in a nutshell. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, from everything you read and hear about him, when you go back and look at it, because like you say, we were young when he was, you know, hitting his prime. This man was crazy. And if a lot of this sounds familiar, it's the place of Jimmy Johnson. Just picture Nicole Kimmon going, stop the car, Cole, stop the car. Yes. I mean, Days of Thunder was entirely based around Tim Richmond. I mean, yeah. no doubt about it. There's other stuff. The the whole driving backwards and the Pocono right that was that happened. I mean, a lot of the things in Days of Thunder was Tim Richmond. So um it's uh Tim Richmond is a character. He's gonna be one of the top pieces of our nineteen eighty six puzzle, so I want to spend a little bit of time with him. And uh one of the articles I actually found uh, has it talks about Richmond changing his image, and I want to. I also want to read this one uh, before we wrap up on Richmond going into '86 because I think it um, it's pretty interesting with some of the things that's said in this article with what we know now. In the chopped barbecue and slaw world of NASCAR, Tim Richmond's diet alone is enough to make him stand out among the good old boys of stock car racing. 
Richmond's preparations for NASCAR's season starts February the 15th in the Daytona 500 have included a daily ritual of rising at 5.30 a.m. to cook a breakfast concoction of brown rice, raisins, and bananas. Later, when most humans are still trying to turn over their personal engines with a first cup of coffee, Richmond is well into his morning routine of aerobics, weightlifting, and running. His reward is a lunch of steamed vegetables with mineral water to drink. Hardly the image of a man who last year ran the NASCAR circuit with a beer company for a sponsor, but it fits a man tired of running 20 races in 1985 without a win or even a second place to show for his work. I'm charging my batteries, said Richmond, describing the weeks he spent living off and on a boat in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Richmond has worked in the past year to alter his image as the NASCAR circuit's one-man tribute to Hollywood and blown dry hair. In addition to adopting the eat-to-win diet and exercise program employed by such notables as Martina Navratilova, Richmond has a new ride, a new crew chief, new sponsor, and new team owner. It just clicked one day. It was time for a change, Richmond said. I didn't like the way I was, so I took charge of my life. I didn't like the way I was and wanted to get back to being the person I was, healthy, eating the right food, and getting exercise. To go with his new slender frame and Florida tan, Richmond has combined backing of country music star T.G. Shepard and Folgers Coffee to put Chevrolet Monte Carlo owned by Charlotte businessman Rick Hendrick on the Daytona International Speedway track. Hendrick has added racing veteran Harry Hyde to the team as crew chief. Many observers of NASCAR racing say the combination is too good not to win. Tim needed someone like Harry, someone with the knowledge of the sport's history and who can coach him, Hendrick said. Tim and Harry fit together really well. Harry likes to run flat out, and so does Tim. People are saying this is a make-or-break year for me, said Richmond, but the way I look at it, every minute is important for me. Everything, every minute from here on out is pivotal in my career, said Richmond in the tones of a man who had just discovered metaphysics. Richmond believes it. It comes across in the very way he speaks. He leans forward, eyes gleaming, and says, I'm going to be a whole different person this year. I think people can tell that about me. I've taken hold of my life. God, Andy, what, <laughs> yeah. just what we know now, just listen to the, listen to that article. It's, it's God, that's hard to read. Honestly, it, it's almost perfect. I mean, I'm not real sure how much he knew about his diagnosis he, at this I, I point this, or if this, he knew I, anything. Yeah. Hey, I looked this up. This is something because I wanted to, I thought maybe he knew something was going on. He doesn't really get sick, at least from what I can tell, uh, enough to go. He goes to the doctor sometime in the spring of 86 because he's got a cold that it won't go away. But he doesn't learn until he gets really sick right after the banquet, after 1986. So in December of 1986, that's around the time where he finds out that he has AIDS. I don't know if he finds out in December or January of 80, like December 86, January 87, but he has no idea heading into 86 that he has AIDS. No clue. Oh, that makes it even worse than good Lord. That's, I mean, you talk about some people, I don't know, I guess you get a sixth sense or a feeling about something coming on and that, that's, uh, 
like I say, that's hard to read knowing what you know now and with as much talent as he had. Yeah. So, uh, so Richmond, I mean, he was trying to clean up his act going into 86. He knew this was his chance. He, he knew getting Folgers coffee, having Rick Hendrick, having Harry Hyde. He knew this was a good shot and he was trying to clean it up and God, it's just a little too late. I mean, nobody, had the, and, and that's something now we take for granted. Everybody now knows about all the dangers of all the bloodborne diseases and all that. And, and they just didn't back then. I mean, it was a wide open ball game in the eighties. You know, it was the lavish lifestyle and Richmond led it and you know, it, it bit him, but nobody knew then, you know, you didn't know that this could happen to you. No. And that's another thing. That's part of it where he was a little bit ahead of his time. Just like the article says at this time in NASCAR, you still got people smoking cigarettes during caution, you know, the thought of having trainers and doing aerobics and, you know, keeping your body in top shape, that didn't go through most of their minds other than can I make it through a 500 mile race? No, absolutely not. So, I mean, Richmond was just, he was a pioneer in a lot of ways. Honestly, he really was. So we'll, we, I am sure we're going to spend a lot of time with Tim Richmond this year. We'll jump onto the next topic, which is what happened to his ride. Rusty Wallace replaces Richmond in the 27 he, with sponsorship of Alugard, Wallace had driven the Cliff Stewart number 88 in 1984 with sponsorship from Gatorade and drove the Stewart car in 1985 running the number two. And he had Alugard as the sponsor in 85. So he brings it over in uh, 1986 to replace Tim Richmond. Alan Kowicki and Michael Waltrip are both rookies trying to run the entire season. Uh, Ironically enough, both of them miss the Daytona 500 because back then you had cars missing Daytona. We had, I think, 13 or 14 DNFs uh, that didn't make it through the qualifying races. So Waltrip and Kawicki, both rookies, but neither one of them make Daytona. Before, a lot of people may not know, before Kawicki came to NASCAR, he was a former track champion at Slinger Speedway, two-time track champion at Wisconsin International. He was pretty successful in the ASA back when the ASA was a big deal. Bob Seneker, Mike Eddy, those guys. I mean, Rusty Wallace came from the ASA. Mark Martin ran in the ASA. A lot of the a lot of the hot shots come from the ASA. And Kowicki was a he was an up and coming guy. But uh, him and Waltrip are both going to be running for Rookie of the Year. We won't spend no time on them right now because they don't even make Daytona. Doing the research for the Daytona 500. Um, I ran across this thing called the LR series and I thought, what's that? I've never heard of that. So for the other people that may say, what's that? I've never heard of that. Let me give you a brief rundown of the LR series straight from an article from the Associated Press. The most significant move in NASCAR's attempt to expand its audience could be the plans to incorporate a new series of road races into the Winston Cup schedule in 1987. Dubbed the LR, Left and Right Turning Series, the races would be run in smaller, lighter cars on existing road courses like Laguna Seca in California or on temporary street courses such as the Meadowlands in New Jersey. The LR Series, a shift from traditional oval racing, would count in the standings. To ensure future growth, we felt that we had to have flexibility to run anywhere because we don't see anyone building new super speedways, said Jim Hunter. (laughs) They may not have been in 1986, but it wasn't going to be long before that's that's not factual, said Jim Hunter, NASCAR's vice president. 
and we felt that we had to have race cars that could run anywhere. When we began to talk about street races, we knew our current cars were too big and bulky to give the fans the type of competition on road courses that they've become used to. Hunter said that it could take until midsummer to complete testing of the LR series prototype models and to iron out the other details. So the article actually goes on and it talks about Willie T. Ribs coming to NASCAR and that was a, a, a draw to get him to come to NASCAR was this potential of the LR series. I've done a little more research on it. Um, the only guy that actually built a car that was customized for the LR series and I, from what I read, he spent close to $100,000, which is not pocket change in 1986, was Bobby Allison. So Bobby Allison builds this prototype car and tests it for NASCAR and has all this. And then NASCAR doesn't run the LR series. So I would venture to guess if you ever talked to Bobby Allison, I wouldn't probably bring up the LR series. Andy, I mean... This, this when you read this and they're talking about expansion and growing and they want to do a road course series, this kind of sounds like you know they want to get to more road courses now. You know they're doing this now, and this is an article from 1986, and they were talking about it then. Yeah, they they should have went with it instead of they they went entirely the wrong direction. Now you've got I, I'd hate to even I don't even know exactly how many mile and a half. You know, two mile trials just all over the place, and you know now, like you say, they're talking about going back to more short tracks, more road courses, get back to the roots of racing, and you know here they knew this back in '86. So why is it taking so long for them to come around on it? I I, I think that I don't know. I mean, I, I this is one thing I can't. I can tell you, they said they were talking to. Now, they did mention in the article they were talking to Sears Point back then because they knew that Rich uh, Riverside was going away, and they do wind up getting Sears Point, which is now known as, um, now, is it known as Sears? No, because that's the spot. Uh, Sonoma, out in Sonoma. Yeah, Sonoma. So we've got that. They had been talking to Portland, um, uh, Road America, Mid-Ohio. So they, they, were, they were actually thinking about adding four or five road courses but this would have been – this is probably why they didn't do it. If they're talking about building a specific car that is – I mean, it's not like you could retrofit one of the other cars. This is going to be smaller wheelbase, different-sized car. That would have been a pretty big um, cost to incur for the teams in 1986, 87. I think that NASCAR probably looked at it and said, uh, we can't ask the, you know, the, the, them to build cars like this. Um I think what they were off base on, though, is even though the cars were big and bulky, they probably still could have had some pretty pretty good racing on, you know, if they went to Mid-Ohio, they could have probably still had a really good race. Like, there's places and uh, road courses in America at that time they could have still had good road course racing without having to have that smaller wheelbase car. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you, you got to look at it like uh... – Roll right now, I think it was a Rick Hendrick that actually bought used cars off of another team so he could start with the two teams this year, or was that yeah, somebody no, else? Uh, Hendrick actually, um, I think he did buy some cars, uh, but it from um, maybe the 44, was it when they went back to Oldsmobile? I did read this. Might have been. He, he bought some cars for Jeff Bodine's team, well, maybe for both teams. But I do know that the car that Jeff Bodine races in the 500 was um, 
I think it was a new, newly built car. Yeah, the one for the 500 was newly built, but they was talking about how that you know they had bought the used cars for it. So if you're buying used cars just to do the regular races, yeah, it's not going to be feasible to make brand new cars for one or two tracks. It that might have been what shot it in the foot. It could have been. Okay, so um, I think we should also now go over some. This is this is what these are. This is what I call. Uh, bookkeeping department this is pre-1986 notes that um i think that it's going to be relevant to 1986 and these are from some books and we're just going to hit them one at a time and talk about them real quick and knock these out this from earnhardt nation the full throttle saga of nascar's first family by jay busby Childress doubled down prior to 1986, knowing that he had a special team. He built a new shop in Welcome, North Carolina, and the group spent the winter prepping the new headquarters. The pit crew bonded, dubbing themselves the first, first the Junkyard Dogs and later the Flying Aces, with, with Gasman Chocolate Myers as their unofficial leader. You know, before I go on... I wonder if Vince McMahon got into their ear and said, Hey, pal, I got the junkyard dog, and you can't call yourself that. Or I'll get you. You're fired. Yeah, so uh, if you can't tell, we, we, we know a little bit about wrestling also. There was a, a wrestler called the junkyard dog, and and maybe that, I, I doubt that had anything to do. Flying Aces is cooler anyway, I think. But yeah, the junkyard well, dog, I mean, the junkyard dogs remember. does give that, uh, it does give that impression of, you know, mean mean we're not going to put up with any crap and i think that that definitely fits that team anyway uh wrangler on board for third season cause for optimism earnhardt needed to win another championship and soon then came 1986 the season began as several had before and so many would afterward with a great daytona 500 run spoiled at the last instant the culprit this time was a gas tank that came up empty with only three laps remaining while Earnhardt was in the lead. That is incorrect. <laughs> we will talk about the race. I just watched it, and he was not in the lead, allowing Jeff Bodine to skirt past Earnhardt for the win. So they've just built a new shop. Childress was ready to go. Wrangler is on board for the season. This is, I mean, we know Earnhardt as the man in black, and the intimidator but this was really i think this season may be the the season you could point to with earnhardt that made earnhardt 1986 was the season where he became what we know as dell earnhardt oh yeah because he he knew that he had the backing and that uh he wasn't going to get left out in the cold everything was set in stone and all he had to do was concentrate on driving and when that man only had to concentrate on driving watch out Yes, sir. Okay, so another art, another book here, Sundays Will Never Be the Same by Darrell Waltrip. Junior Johnson was not satisfied with winning the season championship in 1985. We had won only three races all year, and he hated losing races. In my opinion, Junior would rather win a race than win a championship. He was irked by the evident superiority of the new Fords and was further annoyed by the fact that Chevrolet was starting to help other owners. We had once been Chevy's number one team, but now Rick Hendrick and Richard Childress were getting plenty of attention and assistance from Chevy, too. So that from Darrell Waltrip's book. But then I really think that one of the most interesting things was the Bobby Allison, couple of art excerpts from his book, Miracle, Bobby Allison and the Saga of the Alabama Gang by Peter 
Golenbach. This is about Robert Yates and Dygard, but it does tie in to the whole 1986 season. Robert Yates had begun his racing career in 1968 working for Holman and Moody as its air gauge department manager and quickly moved up to assistant engine builder. In 1971, he joined Junior Johnson's race team and built engines for Bobby Allison and Kel Yarborough. He then spent 10 years fighting with the Gardner brothers at Dygard while he built engines that ran fast and lasted. Yates had been the in- engine builder when Bobby won his driving championship in 1983. Dygard wasn't stable, and just before the Daytona 500 in 1986, Yates left the team abruptly. Robin Pemberton, the crew chief of the Dygard team, recalled the day Yates left Dygard and the final days of a once great race team. We had made some decent runs with Greg Sachs in 85, but we were struggling, said Pemberton. We made it through the year, made it through the wintertime attempting to build a car or two, but there was big money trouble. The checks never bounced, but we knew it was close when we would get paid because we always got our paycheck two minutes after the bank closed. We made it through the wintertime, but some of our people left. They have been there long enough, and it didn't look like we would have a sponsor. We signed TRW, the automotive aftermarket, to be Greg's sponsor in 1986. We started the season, but we were struggling. Robert Yates was still there. In February of 86, we were at Daytona for the 500, and Dick Beatty, who was in charge of competition for NASCAR, made the announcement at the end of the day. Okay, guys, put your tools down and go home. The night he made that announcement, Robert Yates said, Okay, I'm laying my tools down, and I'm going home. Well... What Robert meant was he was laying his tools down and he was going home, home. He said to me, I got you this far. I had the sense something was going wrong. And sure enough, that was his last day at Dygard. He was just gone. He took his tools and he went home. He had just had enough. One too many checks didn't go in the right direction. So the next day I have no engine builder. We went to Richmond and to Rockingham. By then, we were working from 6 in the morning until 5 or 6 in the morning every day. We didn't have enough men, didn't have enough going on. You would literally leave the shop, drive home, take a shower, turn around, and drive back to work. My wife wasn't doing real good with it. Our child was four months old. This whole thing was insane, and it was time to leave. So, Andy, Dogguard Racing had been... You know, pretty big deal, big time troubles here that a lot of people don't know about. You know, I mean, I'm sure they could keep this kind of quiet back then before we had Twitter in 1986, but uh, not not looking good heading into 86 to lose uh, Robert Yates. And I mean, he went home home. He he left NASCAR. Yeah. He he does come back, yeah. obviously, but he le- he quit. He just went home. Yeah, he was one of those people when he was done is like, I'm done, you, you know. Here and you, you can't blame him in a way because here you are, you are one of the premier engine builders. Even at that time, you know everybody talks about how good the motors were, how long they lasted, how fast they could get, you know how much horsepower he got out of them. And you're the, I mean, you're one of the main guys, and your check's bouncing. Well, your check ain't bouncing, but you're getting it before you can cash it at the <laughs> bank. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't blame him. I'd have packed my stuff up and went to the house, too. I, I was surprised somebody else didn't try to pick him up. Maybe they did, and he was just tired. You know, you know look, I'm tired of it. Burnt I'm going out. home. I'm doing something else. Yeah, he's probably just burnt out at that point. Okay, so the other article that, or the other little excerpt we're going to take out of the Bobby Allison book 
1986, when Bobby Allison signed with the Stavola brothers, for years he had refused to be part of a two-man team. He wanted everyone on the team devoted to him. When the Stavolas took Bobby, he would be joining Bobby Hillen. Bobby assumed, since he was the veteran with a track record of more than 80 wins, he would be top dog and Hillen would be the second car. He didn't realize that, after his winless 1985, that the Stavolas saw him as an over-the-hill has-been, hired to take their wonderkind to the next level. Bobby, not understanding his role and place, even went so far as to suggest that the Stavolas put Hillen in an ARCA car so Bobby could teach him what he needed to know to win at the Winston Cup level. Oh no, Bobby was told. We're going to run him at Daytona, not some ARCA race. He's going to run Winston Cup, period. You can drive for us too if you want to. Bobby had to eat a little crow. He went and apologized to Hillen. The Stavolas badly wanted for Bobby Hillen to be the next young superstar in racing. <laughs> they assigned Ron Perrier, who was hired as their manager of racing operations, to get Hillen to the top. Perrier, in an attempt to satisfy his boss's desire to better Hillen, paid Allison's wants very little mind, and it became very difficult for Allison to work with him. Let's get myself going for now. Let me not think about Bobby Hillen, Allison would say to Perrier. No, 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 was the answer. You've got to help Hillen. Bobby hired Wayne Baumgartner to be his crew chief. I thought Wayne did a very good job, said Bobby. Wayne tried, to, tried hard and tried to do my part of the program with very little cooperation from Ron Perrier. Despite the limitations, Bobby kept positive. I felt our team had promise for the future, he said. So we have one of the legends of NASCAR. He had already won over 80 races. He's definitely one of the the best drivers of NASCAR. So it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the Stavola brothers bringing in Bobby Bobby Allison and saying, "Hey, that Bobby Hillen kid, I got. He's good. You need to make. You need to be more like Hillen, Allison." Yeah, we know you've had success at every level of racing, and one you know. A bunch of races, and you're 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 one of the leg. I mean, when you think of the legends of NASCAR, even at this point, that's one of the names that comes up. And it's like, no, you're going to take the back seat to this healing kid. Who? Yeah. I mean, I'm, even now, I had to go back and look up who healing was. I mean, you know, lost to the angles of history, I guess. Yeah, Hillen was not a bad driver. It's just it, you had it's God. It's like having um. It's like having prime rib and a Big Mac sitting on the same table, and you you just jump into the Big Mac. Well, this is the best thing that I've ever tasted. You didn't even try the great. prime rib. No. Oh, uh, it, it was yeah. I, that just blew my mind. I'm like, how do you disrespect somebody like that? And when he tries to get, and I'm sure if the truth was known, he was trying to tell him, you know, look, yeah, he's got talent, but let's bring him up. You know, and they're like, nope, he's got to go straight into the fire. Uh, well, good luck with that. <laughs> okay, so we have talked about pretty much the the moving parts headed into the speed weeks for 1986. So what we're going to do now is take a little quick time out. We're going to play a couple of 1986 commercials to get you in the spirit. And we're going to come back with the Bush Clash Review right after this. We at Planters have heard that shoppers are pushing, shoving, and yes, taking cans from sweet old ladies because they have to have our delicious honey roasted nuts. Phyllis, we're on the air. Oh, 
Uh, sure, they're irresistible. Sweet enough to please, salty enough to tease. But don't worry, there's plenty for everyone. Planters has cans, planters has jars. Planters has a problem. What, <laughs> guys? Planters honey roasted nuts. It's hard to keep them around. If you tune in 60 Minutes this week, it's almost guaranteed you're going to fall in love with Donna Selby. Tonight on CBS. And welcome back to Racing Through Time 1986 NASCAR podcast. Uh, now we go into our quick 1986 Bush Clash review. I say quick because, um, Randy, 1986, uh, you know, the Bush Clash now I think is, I don't know how many laps it is. It's a lot. In 1986, it was 20 laps and there were eight cars. So not a lot to really delve into when we talk about the clash in 1986 yeah but you know it's one of them things they keep expanding on stuff and sometimes that's not the best because this right here was entertaining and like you say you had eight drivers you know now they give everybody from the pit crew's mama's sisters a spot in it and it i don't know it gets crazy but this was nice short and give people a taste of what they was fixing to get yeah, so Ken Squire introduces the broadcast. There's a lot of talk early about the speed. It could be the fastest race of all time. So really, that's what they're pumping in the broadcast is how fast they're going. And they are going fast. I mean, they're going faster than they go now. They're going 202, oh, yeah. 203 miles an hour. So Chris Cottomacki joins Squire. And, man, we're going to talk about oh Chris <laughs> and Ken in the Daytona 500. We're not not so much in this race. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave the commentary out of that. So the new GM bodies, uh, this is a big story. 1985, Bill Elliott figured out a way to whip their hind in with aerodynamics. And in 1986, Chevrolet said, no siree. And they've kind of changed the slant of the rear windows. They've made the cars a little more aerodynamic because they knew they didn't want to follow the uh, the redhead from Dawsonville around in 1986 again. No, you you know, back then, like you say, each manufacturer could come up with innovations to make their car better, and it was back and forth. And, you know, they talk about, well, we got to have them the same so it'll be fair racing. Well, back then, they pretty well self-regulated to the, for the most part. I mean, NASCAR got involved a little bit, but... You know, if your car's better than us this year, that's fine. We're just going to go build a better car for next year. Yeah, the uh, no Hawkeye system in 1986. Uh, no standard template, nothing like that. So all the cars were different, and, and that does, you know, that did make NASCAR stand out. All the cars were different. So the eight cars in the race, uh, starting lineup by random draw, Starting on the pole, Skull Bandit, number 33, Harry Gant, Neil Bonnet alongside in the 12 Budweiser uh, Junior Johnson car. Rusty Wallace gets in third as a wild card, and I had to look up how what that was. Actually, the wild card was all second round qualifying fast time drivers got put in the pool, and one of them got picked out, and Wallace won that. And yes, back in... You know, not too not too long ago, we still had two rounds of qualifying, uh, usually the next day. So Rusty Wallace gets in by that. Dale Earnhardt in the Wrangler car in fourth. Darrell Waltrip's going to start fifth in the Budweiser Chevrolet. Bill Elliott sixth in the Coors Ford. Jeff Bodine and Levi Garrett Chevy in seventh. And Terry Labonte in the Piedmont number 44 will start shotgun. 
Benny Parsons, Ned Jarrett in the pits. Somebody can win $80,000 in the race today. Benny Parsons says he's got Darrell Waltrip in the pool. Seven of the eight cars have the new body styles. Elliott is the only one that doesn't. Now, interesting fact here, Dale Earnhardt is the only driver who brought a car specifically for the Bush Clash. The second fewest cars to ever start the Clash. The fewest was seven in 1981. And Andy, my God, look at that crowd. It was beautiful, wasn't it? I mean... It didn't look like it was an empty seat in the house. No, and I know Daytona did not. I think the they said 80,000 grandstand, something like that. And I, tr- I had to look it up to see what else was maybe going on that day. I thought, surely they can't all be there just for the Bush Clash. I mean, my gosh, it was full. And they, they qualifying had got rained out the day before, so they did wind up having qualifying that day, and there was an ARCA race. But still, that kind of crowd to watch 20 cars, basically the, the, the 20, 20 laps, eight cars drew that crowd. Yeah, and well, it goes back to, you know, used to a NASCAR race was an, you know, it was a weekend event. It wasn't just, you know, hey, they're coming to the race. You know, it was, hey, we got to get up there because we got to find the drivers. We got to look at all this other stuff. You know, that was one of the few places where you could get merchandise. You know, it, I don't know. It was, it was like the Super Bowl and, you know, a circus all rolled into one. Well, like some people still say that the, the circus <laughs> has been around for a while. But, but, but honestly, I mean, we're not here to crack because I write about NASCAR now. I mean, I like it. I wouldn't write about it if I didn't. It's just, it's so much, it's just refreshing to me be able to go back and watch these races from 1986 and not worry about all the crap that we put up with now. And, you know, this car with a, you know, uh, it had a piece of dust on it, so it was out of spec. And the, we had yeah. window gate this year, and re- and we're not here to talk about 2018, but just all the little nitpicky stuff. Now, back then, these it's just refreshing to watch these races where it. We don't even, and I think now, a lot of what it is, uh, honestly, is we get we're spoiled. We have overload of information on NASCAR. For the Daytona, I guarantee we're, we're going to see every practice for every one of the series leading up to everything, which is good because I can't get enough of it. But I think there is something to be said about that anticipation. Man, it's going to be on CBS today. This is the only dadgum time I get to see it. There are no replays. The VCRs cost $500 back then. There was no such thing as DVR. I can't miss it. They made NASCAR can't miss TV because it wasn't on 24-7 like it kind of is now. And I remember, you know, back then, especially like the earlier races on Sunday, you'd be coming back from church and you're turning the radio station trying to find, you know, yeah, the race to, to get find to the, the house too, so you could see it. Yeah, trying to get MRN to come in just so you can listen to Barney Hall call him coming around. And there was, I mean, a lot of, there were several races even then that weren't on TV. So we did have to rely on sitting out in the lot, listening. I remember plenty of days sitting with my dad. He'd be working in the barn, and we'd be listening to the NASCAR race because it wasn't on TV. So it's, uh, it's a lot different now. So um, without going blow by blow for the Clash, because we're going to do that for the 500 here very shortly, Dale Earnhardt takes home $75,000. He wins the the Bush Clash, it's like $172,000 in today's money. We don't even know what they make now. Um, that sounds like a pretty good payout, though, for 20 laps. 
Bill Elliott was second, Neil Bonnet third, Jeff Bodine fourth, Terry Labonte fifth, Rusty Wallace sixth, Terry Gant was seventh, and Daryl Waltrip finished dead last. Andy, what was your takeaways from the race? I mean, 20 laps, there were some things that happened, and you could kind of glean a few things from watching this race. What did you take away? Well, you the main thing you could tell, I, I don't know, this is the thing that stood out to me, was watching, even with eight cars out there, the cars were all over the place. They had to be on the wheel the entire time. It wasn't like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Now they have to concentrate and they're, you know, they're within inches of each other, all that stuff. But then you could watch when Earnhardt and them go into the turns, the back end's bouncing. It, I mean, it's literally bouncing and slide. They're almost drifting going around at Daytona and you don't see, I, I don't know. I just, I, even knowing the outcome, I was still sitting on the edge of my seat watching it. Yeah, the boss ply tires back then with the way they could hang it out on that right rear and smoke it. I wish I wish they had tires that could do that now. And it's not a it's not a <laughs> knock on Goodyear. NASCAR kind of tells Goodyear how to make the tires, and Goodyear just says yes, sir. But I wish that they could hang it out a little more now, you know, on the ragged edge, because it was cool to see a car at Daytona sideways smoking the right rear tire going 200 miles an hour. That was that was drifting before we knew what drifting was. And, and they were so good at it. And I don't know. And they, I understand that, you know, the cars eventually got so fast that they had to regulate them and keep them from going into the stands. But as far as the driver's perspective and wrecking and stuff, it was a lot safer when they was going that fast. Yeah, because they stayed more spread out. So, um, the, the, what, one of my takeaways from the race, uh, watching it, Jeff Bodine, I think, had the best car. He, because in the, he started, oh gosh, he started next to last. He starts seventh, and he come up through the field pretty quick. Um, he was going for second, I believe, when he spun out. He was behind Dale Earnhardt. Or he was behind Neil Bonnet and trying to pass Earnhardt, and he he gets inside of him and spins himself out. He doesn't hit anything, but it kind of messes his car up. Um, I think Bodine probably or he he at least had, he had a car that could move around, and he was one of the only ones that I saw passing you know, with any regularity in that race. Well, you could, you could tell another thing you could tell from this race. You could tell who the top three was going to be. You know, you had Elliot. I, I don't know if he was sandbagging or if they had just, you know, caught up to him, but it seemed like he had more, you know, the whole time. And I don't know. It just, it was weird. And then Bodine and Earnhardt were the class of the field. Yeah. Yeah. For the clash, they were, um, Bodine and Earnhardt both, both had good cars. Earnhardt, I think Elliot was trying to do, you know, pull the slingshot on Earnhardt. And I, I think he just got a little too far behind and couldn't, couldn't quite suck back up to him on that last lap like you wanted. so. Well, well, that's another thing you don't see anymore is Earnhardt was actually breaking his draft by, you know, just moving a half a car length here or there, you know, and you could tell every time he would do it, Elliot would just slow up just that fraction of a second, and then he'd start moving again, and I don't know, it just is a lot better racing. I loved it. Yeah, it, it was a good race. Um Definitely encourage you to YouTube it, watch the clash. It, it's 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 short. I mean, you can sit down and watch that in twenty thirty minutes, and uh, you're you're done. Now, the Daytona five hundred is a little different. That's a that's a four hour adventure, but it's it's worth it, and we're going to get there. So, um, Andy, you ready to hit Daytona? You want to go ahead and ro roll right on into the five hundred? Let's roll right in through the gate. Here we go.
All right. So what we we got the Daytona 500 coming at you, and Ken Squire going to give us the introduction. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ken Squire, and welcome to CBS full flag to flag coverage of the Daytona 500 for our eighth year here. And what a great day we have. We haven't had better any time we've been here to this speedway to see this 500-mile race. A year ago, some seven cars hit 200 miles per hour in qualifying laps. This year, some 26 accomplished that feat. But the 80,000 seats that are sold out here today and this infield that is jammed like never before has not been brought here for sheer speed. They've been brought here by people. King Richard is back. And he means business today. And Bobby Allison will be starting in the second row. But the man who really has galvanized the public's interest in stock car racing sits on the pole for the second straight year. That's Bill Elliott. One year ago, he won this race. And he became a combination of Tom Swift and Horatio Elger. And he intends to keep it going today. Okay, so we get Ken Squire with his introduction of the Daytona 500. That gets you going. I mean, Ken Squire sets the mood. It's a big race. You know it's a big race. If, if you just turned it on and don't have a clue what's going on, you're, you're, you're sitting in front of CBS going, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to watch it. Well, I mean, he was the equivalent of Michael Buffer for NASCAR. When you heard that voice, you knew it was about go time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ken Squire, definitely the uh, the man for NASCAR. Uh, Chris Economaki comes in, and he, he actually said something that caught my ear. He's talk, He's just doing his little intro. He says, after all, stock car racing is not just a sport. It's a business. Even in 1986, they're talking about it being <laughs> a business. So, we, we, you know, um, we, we, we take that for granted now. Everything, oh, NASCAR is all business, all business, all business. Well, it, they knew that in 1986. Well, it's, uh, that's another thing we're going to run into that, like I say, when we were younger, we didn't catch, but a lot of the complaints and stuff that you hear today about drivers, you're going to hear the same thing here later on in the in the broadcast. So I'll just, I'll just save that for later. All right. And let's let, th this is something that put, put me for the blast from the past. The Reverend Hal Marchman going to give us a little bit of an invocation. We're, we're catching it in progress. We're going to give you the invocation. We joined the Reverend Hal Marchman in the invocation. Helping us to improve our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. So we invoke your blessings on the activities this day. Amen. So Hal Marchman, you know, every time you hear Daytona, we have we have invocations now all the time, but I, that just triggered something in my happy thoughts. You're hearing the Reverend Hal Marchman come in for the introduction for the Daytona 500. Yeah, I don't know. It's just one of the things like like when you hear the start of the GI Joe anthem, you know, it takes you back to when you was younger, and you're like, oh yeah, I don't know what this is gonna be. So uh, here's here's something that you'll never hear again. Dale Earnhardt is mad at Jeff Bodine after the 125s. Uh, Ken Squire says there is bad blood there. And uh, we go to an interview with Mr. Bodine as he sets up the Daytona 500. I'm one row ahead of you, Chris, with the outside pole sitter, Jeff Bodine. You followed Earnhardt across the line in Thursday's qualifying race. What did you learn there that'll help you prepare for today? Well, we, we learned the cars, the Chevrolets with the fastback mic are, are tighter than they were last year. We always complain loose to the our pit crews, uh, the back end wanted to spit around, now the front ends wanted to go straight. It's a good feeling. We think we've got it worked out. Gary Nelson and I have worked all week to get the car neutral. We think that's what we got. 
like to say hi to my two boys, Matthew and Barry. Love you. Will it be tough to keep the car on the bottom of the racetrack in the turns? Because that will win the race today. Well, that's what we've been working for, Mark. We hope we've got the combination to do that, to run low. Uh, that's, that's the main game plan for today, to run on the low side of this racetrack. Like Earnhardt can, he's looking for his first Daytona 500 victory. Okay, so Jeff Bodine, pre-race interview, he's pretty confident, and uh, I think we're going to find out that he had a lot of right to be, Andy. And if I was him, I'd have been confident, too, because he stayed up there with them. He, he was one of the few that could actually jump out to the lead and keep it. So, yeah, he had all the right in the world to be confident. Oh, yeah. So uh, that we had that from Bodine. Uh, we're going to jump right in <laughs> to the uh, the director of marketing, executive vice president of Anheuser-Busch, Michael J. Rorty, as he gives a rousing rendition of Gentlemen, Start Your Engines. I believe we're seconds away from getting the command to fire these cars up. What? Gentlemen. Looks like they have a small mic problem there. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, please direct your attention down here to pit road for Mike Rorty, the Grand Marshal. Gentlemen, start your engine. So somebody that just absolutely sounded thrilled to be there. <laughs> Michael J. Rowe. I wonder if he'd been sampling the product all day. Gentlemen, start the damn engines. I don't know. Um... I do know. I like it how uh, <laughs> Ken Squires, he has a small mic problem. I think a lot of people have And I'm that. sitting here thinking, give me my big mic then. <laughs> uh, they did. They actually did. They turned around, they threw that mic away, and they, they changed mics out. And I think the other one had a bigger boom on it. Ken Squire introduces his broadcasting partners for the day, Ned Jarrett and David Hobbs. And I love David Hobbs, but David Hobbs and NASCAR is an interesting combination especially when you hear this race, uh, some of the things that he says. Uh, Dale Jarrett uh, says there's going to be – no, not Dale Jarrett. Ned Jarrett says there's going to be crosswinds about 45 to 50 miles per hour blowing around today. Already on the pace laps, we have Joe Rutman with his hood up on pit road. A.J. Foyt had to change wheels this morning. And uh, so even before – see, this is what I'm talking about. With the, We have crap happening before they even take the green flag, Andy. Yeah, and that's what makes it so exciting because they go through all this trouble to get everything right, and then they still don't know what little part of the car could go wrong right before they start. Yeah, exactly. So we are ready to hit it, and Ken Squire is going to explode us into the green flag. Gamblers in Las Vegas will tell you when a man has rolled three times in a row and hit seven, that's the time to double up. Earnhardt has hit three times in a row. Joe Gasaway at the control tower, ready to snap the button and explode this field into turn number one into the back straightaway at 200 miles per hour. You're watching the Daytona 500 Live on CBS. There we go. We explode the field into turn one, and I didn't think it was going to be that. Um, you know, we death matched a thousand, but we explode the field into turn one. Luckily, they all they all come through clean. Uh, God, still Ken Squire bringing it to green. I was pumped up. I was ready for it. To, I was ready for the race. Yeah, and no boogity boogity boogity. Sorry, I know you love Walter, but yeah, I mean, at some point it does kind of grow a little old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's 
That's a good way to put it. So uh, we do have Bill Elliott, Bodine side by side at the end of lap one. They go to an in-car camera that they'll show several times at Bodine. I love the camera. I don't know why. We we talked about this off the air before we even done the show. We can't figure out why that camera looks a lot cooler than it does today. Because, I mean, we have Ultra HD, 4K, right in your seat. You know, everything you want to see right in front of your screen. And this 1986 camera that probably weighed 20 pounds that's sitting in the car, it just gives you some kind of a visual that's different than we get now. Yeah. Yeah, well, like I said, we was talking about it off there. You know, I don't know if the cameras they've got now, especially, I mean, because they got it on the GoPros and all that where it takes the vibration out or if it was just nostalgic or what it is, but the, the angle, it looks like you're sitting in the in the passenger seat and the camera, when it turns, is just like you're turning your head, almost like a VR experience. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't explain it. Watch the race. Tell us what you think. Tell us why we're, you know, why it looked that much better in 1986 than it does now. And that's not just rose-colored glasses because we're trying to crap on today's racing. It's the, there's something about that camera that makes it look. I, I, I swear it must be because of the the camera shake and the way the cars are bouncing around. And and one thing that I also now we have the ticker running immediately that has all the positions, the color of the. You know, we're under green, the lap counter on the bottom line. There's another thing scrolling with other sports news. So we have like 18 things scrolling at once on our screen. Maybe there's just so much stuff on the screen now that when you're watching this race in 1986, there is very little graphics. When you see the cars on the TV broadcast, all you see is the cars. You see nothing else. And that, that might have something to do with it. You know, that could be the case because, like I say, now they've got everything. They can even tell you when they can tell you what they have for breakfast and all that stuff scrolling across the screen. Whereas here, every once in a while, if somebody had a bad wreck, you might see the car number and their name pop underneath it. Yeah, it's it's just a different different setup on the broadcast because we have all the bells and whistles now that they did not have then. So the uh, five car Earnhardt. And Bobby Allison, I'll get by Bill Elliott uh, pretty early here in the race. You can tell Bodine's car is fast. I, I think he had the best car in the clash the week before, and you can tell it's strong here. Uh, early in the race, we get Richard Petty into the wall, coming out of turn four on lap four. He comes into the pits, and they check the tires. Sterling Marlin also hits the pits. There was no pit road speed limit, so immediately I'm like, oh, my God, he's speeding. Uh, no, there is no speeding. And those guys that were on pit road back then had some big cojones to stand out there with them cars screaming at them as fast as they was coming down pit road. How would you like to be the sign guy out there going, whoa? <laughs> the, the one guy that might actually buy it, and he's the, the having to hold that sign out for it. It would not be fun. No. Uh, so we go to commercial break here kind of early in the race, out of the commercial Earnhardt and Allison both get Bob Jeff Bodine 12 laps in that those three are kind of trying to separate themselves from Bill Elliott, Terry Labonte. And then there's a really big gap behind them. And there's like, then there's a big wad of cars. So there's like three and then there's two and then there's 20. So that's kind of how they're running. Um, Bill Elliott, uh, we hear is going to make some adjustments on his first pit stop. Car's not running exactly like he wants it to, and that's going to be a theme through the race. Elliot, 
uh, we'll talk about it later. He he gets in that wreck, but he he never unless he was sandbagging. He never really showed me that he had the car that was going to be able to win anyway. Andy, do you, are you watching early? Can you? I mean, is there something that I'm missing? Did do you think Elliot had a better car? Was he just kind of holding back because he wasn't really the kind of guy that I think usually he would just go out and stomp you if he could. See, that's what I I don't know because during the clash I thought well maybe he's sandbagging because you know you don't want to show them what they've got because you don't want NASCAR to crack on you. I get that. But here, like I say, he's usually the one getting me out in front, and I'm just going to blow everybody away, and it, it never did happen. I don't know. It, one side of me thinks, okay, he might have just been waiting, biding his, time, you know, biding his time, and then on the other side, it's like, well, he never did make a move even when he had a chance, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure what was going on there. So we, we get cars spread out. There's, there's a few small packs of cars, and in that one pack, they're – I mean, when they do get back there and actually show it, that's one thing I will actually say about today's product. Um, the TV coverage actually does a lot better job now of showing racing through the field if there's not racing up front. They were, they kind of kept the cameras on the first pack of cars pretty much in, in in this race and just sporadically showed racing in the pack. But when they did, you they were two or three wide and they were really they were really. <laughs> they were in um, in a wad there for a while, and I would have liked to have saw more racing from like I don't know eighth to twentieth because they looked like they were having a pretty good scrap. Yeah, see, uh, I will say that that's my only complaint about the coverage as far as the angles and stuff that they used in the cameras. You know where they would show like the whole track, and it'd give you a sense of how fast they were going. If they would just showed more of the back of the pack racing or the mid pack racing, like you're talking about, I, I would have liked that a little bit better. But you know, I, I I don't know. I'm I'm just a sucker for the old ones. I don't know. I'll, that, I'll actually say that because that you brought up a good point. That it's something that I'm. I think today's TV camera, their coverage is good, but their cameras shots now a lot of times I think they're too tight like they're they're too zoned in on a couple of cars I like in in these older races they use a lot of wide shots so you can see more of the track and more of the cars and what's going on now you it's it's almost like it's I don't know it's so tight to the cars you don't see anything going on around it in in the coverage we see here the camera angle is a little wider it's a little pan back a little further and you can see more of what's going on i think yeah you could see somebody when they was making a big move or when they first started the game whereas now you know yeah you can see the drop you i mean you can see how you know clean cut his fingernails are but at the same time you can't see who's moving up on him until he's done there in the shot yeah so i mean I, i think they could they can merge the two and make it a lot better product yeah, so, okay, so we get the pack racing. Um, we come out of commercial on lap 24, and then one of the biggest things, you know, one of my biggest moments of the race coming up right here. Dale Earnhardt is in first place here at the Daytona 500. Jeff Bodine maintaining second. Bill Elliott, the first Ford, is in third. Terry Labonte's Oldsmobile is running fourth. And Neil Bonnet's Chevrolet maintaining the fifth position with now 24 of the 200 laps complete. We are watching the leader coming on pit road. A little early for a regular fifth stop, but there's... Car number two, Kirk Bryant, has spun. He's tagged the wall. 
Yellow is out around the racetrack as car number three, the leader, came in. And the early leader, the man that had just passed Earnhardt, Bobby Allison, he lost an engine. He has retired to the garage area. Bobby Allison trying to get back into this racing program with a brand new team, the Stavola Brothers. Okay, and, and when I said one of the biggest moments of the race, I wasn't talking about Kurt Bryant and his uh, his crash. <laughs> Nothing against Kurt Bryant, but I, I don't think he was going to be a factor anyway. But man, I just twenty some laps into the race, and that could have completely changed the look of the race. I mean, Bodine obviously we'll talk about it. He had a really good car. Earnhardt had a really good car, but there's two other guys. I think there was two other guys that could have won that race for sure, and one of them was definitely Bobby Allison. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you never, especially at Daytona, you can never count out Allison to come up and win. And, you know, we've seen weird things happen. We've seen the top two cars get wrecked within 100 yards of the finish line and third place take over, you know. So you never know what could happen. But to be going out that soon, oh, that had to be a heartbreaker. Yeah, I mean, Allison, you know, we, we talked about the uh, starting with Stavola Brothers and new team and they thought he was well i mean at least in the book what the perception was maybe washed up and he was lit you know right up front at the 500 and uh, had one of the best cars and then i guess you'd rather blow it up running first than 41st but it still ain't fun to blow it up so let's uh, let's let allison uh tell it to the audience in his own words bobby did it blow up on you yeah it blew up yep. You had such a great run out here Thursday. I know you had high hopes today to win another Daytona 500, but from the few laps you're able to run, who's got the car to beat? Well, uh, I haven't looked back in the pack any, uh, you know, and I was uh, real worried about some of them sandbagging during the week, so there may be somebody back there looking pretty good. But uh, on the other hand, Earnhardt looks awful good out front. So Bobby Allison, uh, he's calling Earnhardt early. I mean, like he said, it was pretty early in the race. Uh, but Allison, he had recognized Earnhardt's speed there. Um, so we get uh, we get to the restart. Neil Bonnet takes it three wide with a lap Sterling Marlin and Earnhardt. Bonnet can't quite get by. He, he passes Marlin but can't get by Earnhardt. Then uh, we get a – I'm pretty sure we, we get a bunch of random fan shots and shots from everywhere. I'm the, This camera angle, I think that we get a shot of Lynn Devon. If you don't know who Lynn Devon is, just throw her in your Google machine. You can thank me later. Yeah. <laughs> she, Stroker she, Ace was born to race. Yeah, she, she was in Stroker Ace and, and uh, Gumball Rally and uh, a prominent fixture on Pit Road for many years. Larry Pearson, uh, he pulls it behind the wall, and we're going to play a little clip here, and uh, this is going to be something we're going to talk about. That's the fifth engine they've lost this week. They lost one of the sportsman race. That's the fourth engine to go away out here on the David Pearson car. David Pearson cut his eye on a contact lens while he was asleep. So he didn't start this race. Larry Pearson decided to take over. Okay, two things. Two things here. <laughs> first, first thing, five engines. Mm. Somebody's fired. <laughs> I mean, Okay, well, yeah, let me, let me break in here for just a second with the five engines before we get to the good No, no wait a minute, wait a you minute, know. wait, well, well, hold on. Well, in fairness, one of them was the Bush car, but it's four engines in the cup car. Well, we'll go with that. Four engines yeah. in the cup car. And they said that they was having valve problems, and I don't, I think people take it for granted nowadays, but the valves then had to be, they actually have valve, valve grinding compound, and they had to be seated almost by hand. 
and then you've got a spring and a clip and the holder plus the arm. There's like 10 components just for one valve, and you've got usually two to four valves for each cylinder. So you're looking at like 24 valves, and one of them can go bad and ruin your whole race. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's one thing. Um, that's actually not the the main takeaway here, and I've got to be really careful um, because we talk about we're we're not we we have no sacred cows on this show. Let's just say that right now. I don't care who it is, and David Pearson is more of a man than I will ever be. So I am not going to go there, but. We have this thing in NASCAR now where, oh, God, he didn't want to race because he had a uh, he has a concussion or he don't want to race because he has a sinus infection. David Pearson didn't race the Daytona 500 because he cut his eye on a contact lens. <laughs> I will repeat that. David Pearson did not race in the Daytona 500 because he cut his eye on a contact lens. Not saying that that's probably, I mean, hey, if you mess your eye up, NASCAR may not have let him out there anyway. I mean, I honestly don't know. I have not researched this enough to know. But when you hear that, you think, David Pierce, he's one of the toughest guys that ever stepped foot in a race car. So I don't want to ever hear somebody complain anymore about somebody not racing because of anything. Because if you want to complain about that, then you've got to complain about David Pearson. And by God, I'm not complaining about David Pearson. Because if the man couldn't race, he couldn't race. But when you hear something like that, Andy, I had to rewind it and say, did he say <laughs> that he cut his eye on a contact lens? So, well, see, I, I that's think a, that's where a lot of people, especially like our generation, because we grew up through, you know, my main memories are from the late 80s, early 90s, you know, that era of NASCAR. And we're used to seeing, like, Ricky Rudd, you know, where he taped his eye. I believe it was Ricky Rudd where he taped his eyelids up so he could race. That was 83 you know, or 84. Yeah, it was Yeah, right out here you know, we the were, Bad Bush Clash. We remember, yeah, we remember stuff like that, like Earnhardt getting strapped in there with a broke sternum, you know, broke arms, broke bones, you know. That's one thing, but like you say, your eye, yeah, I... You know, when you, when you can't open your eye because you cut it, yeah, you know, so. Well, you don't want to be flying around Daytona with, <laughs> with one eye. I, I get yeah. that. So, yeah, so I don't think so, you want to be doing a pirate look going around we're, Daytona. We're not, no. trying to, we're not trying to backtrack off of this. I think it's funny. It's, it, it's funny only because in our generation and a lot of these twittiots that gets on here and they're, they're keyboard heroes and hey, well, he didn't race and I could have raced if they had cut my right arm off. No, you wouldn't have. David Pearson didn't race because he had an <laughs> eye problem. So don't ever give me this bull crap about this, these people not racing because of a problem. Yeah. When David Pearson didn't race, if, if you want to say they should race, then you should say David Pearson should have raced. And I'm not going to make that call that David Pearson should race. If he's not good, if he can't go, I trust what David Pearson says. So I'm not going to ever going forward, make fun of another guy because he, he didn't get in the race because of anything, period. Now, that now that being said, I still think Earnhardt would have got in there and tried to pirate it out, but that's just my opinion. Um, I'm biased. I'll admit it. We will move on. <laughs> so we're, we're 50 laps into the race. Um, early thoughts of, of the 500, Andy. I, I, my early, I, I thought real quickly um, – 
I was a little surprised that the pack spread out as quick as it did because even back then when they did spread out, a lot of times in the older races you would still see they would have fairly, you know, seven, eight, ten cars kind of in a pack for a while. I mean, it was almost instantaneous, especially in this first, first right out of the gate that the pack separated. There's two or three cars. They're gone. Yeah, and you, it was the it was the same cars. That's what was weird about it because you know used to like I say you could see, well this group of three will break loose and then you'll have a caution and then you know a different group will break loose and this group has to chase them. But no, every time it seemed like Bodine and Earnhardt and whoever could hang on with them was going to the front and then you had the middle pack and then you had the stragglers. Yeah, so we get Earnhardt smoking the right rear. We talked about that in the. Bush Clash, but you can see it visually here on on uh, right after lap 50. I don't have the exact lap number, but Earnhardt is smoking the right rear, hanging it out because tr- his car is he's running the high line and he's he's trying to catch up and uh, he's he's really hanging it out on the edge on that right rear, trying to chase down Bonnet and uh, Jeff Bodine. It was it's pretty awesome sight there. And then we have uh, an issue with Daryl Waltrip that we will jump into right now to go. Darrell Waltrip had himself a problem out here. Their window screen came loose in and he was black flagged by the NASCAR officials. He had to come into the pits to get that put back up. They of course filled it up with gasoline. He was in for about 10 seconds. Well of course this is part of the safety uh, safety crew here. They noticed his net was down and back in 1960 Herman Bean was black flagged here because he was driving the race with no crash hat. He forgot to put his crash hat on. It took eight laps before some smart official said Hey, that boy out there's got no crash out. I better bring him in. You remember Herman, Ned? Oh, very well, yes. He was uh, a real institution in the sport. <laughs> and, uh, and, trans- and translated, that means helmet. <laughs> Dave Marcus, a lap down. Sounds like one of the good old boys. And we have David Hawks oh, with... Um, with uh, his commentary there. I, Hobbs is interesting in, in the race. He, 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 he almost, I think he's just trying to have fun, but he's almost making fun of uh, the down south NASCAR thing, honestly. Because he, yeah, he throws that accent in a few times. Almost. Yeah. And I don't think he means to be. And I loved Hobbs in F1 when uh, over the last few years when he done F1 broadcast. So I, but this, he, he just, I don't know if he was trying too hard to be funny or, or what, and it actually worked cause it is funny, but at the same time, it's like, Oh, you, you, you messed the wrong redneck. Uh, you, you know, make him mad. Yeah. The next week you might come out with a black eye. Yeah. Him and his cousins liable to find you. And I know cause I are one. Exactly. So, um, but the, the whole thing about his crash helmet, he obviously his helmet or crash hat, he, he didn't have a helmet. Could you imagine? I don't care what it is, especially with those death trap cars that they used to drive. Um, going out there in Daytona, where's my helmet? The hell with it. We're just going to go. <laughs> yeah, why not? You know, I ain't got no top on the car. What do um, I need a helmet for? Uh, like I said, those guys are a lot braver than I am. So we had that. Um, Bonnet co- Waltrip comes out of the pits. Bonnet gets by him. He laps him. Bodine Earnhardt still second and third. Everybody's spread out again. Harry Gann off the pace now. Um, and, you know, wait a minute. This is one thing I wanted to talk about. This is part of the reason that people liked NASCAR back then because when Gant has his trouble, he comes in. And they show them working on the car, and any shade tree mechanic can see they're trying to figure out if why he don't have no spark. 
because they've got the coil wire off. They're holding it up there against the manifold, and they're turning it over trying to make it spark to diagnose the problem. And any shade tree mechanic has done the same thing, and that's what I think give them a connection to the sport. Yeah, they they knew what he was actually trying to accomplish there. It's not like it's not like astrophysics like it is now. Now, yeah, no you know, now they, they're plugging in laptops and stuff, and us shade tree mechanics are like, what? What are they doing that for? <laughs> so Mark Martin, this is uh, his, He's he ran NASCAR a little earlier. This is he's, he's coming back to NASCAR, driving the O2 car. He pulls it on pit road. He's out of the race. Yeah, Hobbs, uh, another note I didn't put. I don't know what the audio was here, but he's he's uh, still still doing that redneck shtick or whatever he was trying to accomplish <laughs> um if uh, i'll just say this ned jarrett's a gentleman and he'll he'll just go along with it if, if he'd had old buddy baker in the booth with him and buddy might not have he might not have appreciated it as much you make a fun my people whap <laughs> something like that so uh then we have uh another we have richard petty who is uh, having a moment of trepidation it's not handling as well as he expected. Whoa, but he's up on the wall now. Definitely not handling as well as Richard Petty has snarled the wall. You can hear that car striving to stay alive. And the caution is out. is out for Petty. Richard Boy, Petty he hit that wall pretty good. He brushed it up here in four. And now you can see Richard Petty's number 43. Dale Inman back with him this year. Richie Bars, a lot of the old-time names, all back on that crew. Listen to that car coming apart. Caution is out for this car, number 43, that you're limping with back into the pits. So uh, Richard Petty here has, uh, you know, he, he, we find out he had broken a wheel or loses a tire. Something mechanical happened, and he hit the wall. And when you're watching it live, you can tell he hit the wall pretty hard. But they come out uh, during this caution flag, and they show a replay of him hit the wall. My God. Good. Uh, oh, Lord. It's, God, it's so scary to see these guys, knowing what we know and knowing the safety that they've got now. He just flails around. I mean, he moved. I don't know, Andy. Would you say his head moved a good foot, foot and a half, when he hit the I wall, was... just whipping whipping right? I will say this. He, he, First of all, go watch the clip. You trust me, it's amazing. But he's in a five-point harness, and still yet his head goes and, if I'm not mistaken, hits the camera that's sitting where a passenger seat would be. Yeah. So yeah, at least a good foot, his neck and stuff has stretched over, and it not just once. One time he goes about six inches over, and then when it hits the wall again, it throws him even further, and you see sparks fly. And I'm like, I, I thought he broke his neck right there. Yeah, and we do find out uh, during the broadcast that he did separate his shoulder, and then they they pop it back in place at the hospital. So, luckily, I mean, it was still it was a hard hit. And I swear, when I first saw it on the reap or not even the replay when when they're when they're trying to follow him there, knowing that he's having some issues, and he hit the wall. I thought, well, he hit it. It looked kind of hard, but it didn't look devastating. But then when you see that in-car camera, it, it was devastating. Yeah, it, it, I don't know. It goes back to that where they always talk about if you see a wreck that looks horrible, the driver can walk away 
faster than you see one where it's just like, oh, he just hit the wall because yeah, I, of that sudden impact. Yeah, and he, he pancaked, like he pancaked it with the side. So it did, there was no force taken away. He didn't really hit it with the front end. He hit it dead dead in the right side door, and maybe that had something to do with it. So um, we're under caution. A lot of just, they're, they're trying to kill time, and um, we get this. On that picture. And there's auto racing personality Harold Kinder. Yes, sir. The chief starter for NASCAR. One of the great personalities. I'm not sure that I'd stand where Harold Kinder stands on that little bridge over the uh, start finish line in the trial here. Little bridge. Cars come bounding down there on an end over end. It's not very far up. I saw a fellow taking right off of one of those up in Oxford, Maine one night. He came, they, the car came up like a giant whale and just took the guy clean out. Let's go to Mike Joy. Okay, so uh, the pure si- the silence, the silence. Was just yeah, yeah. It, that's what was it, it, the story. Okay, David Hobbs calls the flag stand a little bridge, which is funny <laughs> enough. I thought I thought that was cute. I was going to put the clip in there anyway, and then Squire decides to break off on that story and talk about the guy. A guy, I mean, I, I, I don't know the the fate of the gentleman at Oxford Speedway. I hope he was okay, but nonetheless, he compares a car climbing up and taking out the a guy wiped clean out, like a whale, like a whale with a car like a whale. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) well, thanks for that uh, (laughs) insight, Ken. And we go to Mike Joy right after we talk about something horrific, and nobody can say anything. They're just looking. I'm sure they was all like, "What." Did you just well, say you know, it? it's like any great, it's like any great commentary team. You know, you've got the straight guy, and then like for this, you had Squire. He's usually the straight guy, and then you have Jarrett and Hobbs to kind of give color to it. That's why they call it that. And then all of a sudden, he comes up with this, and then throws it to the pit reporter. Okay, so we have that, and we finally get Petty's accident cleaned up. We go back to green, and then the other big, one of the other real big moments of the race happens right now. Green flag is out. And from the Goodyear blip, you see the restart. Dropping back is Bonnet. Bonnet drops all the way off the pace. You can see him slowing down that blip. Boy, Earnhardt oh, got hit. Run over him. By crikey, Dale Earnhardt did a sterling job there. He really did. Something, the car just wouldn't go when he, when he restarted. But it still was. So, Neil Bonnet, uh, car will not fire on the restart there, and... Uh, we find out later, was it his shifter? His shifter not broke? He was stuck in second gear? Yeah, the linkage is messed up and it's stuck in second. I swear it goes back to the days of thunder. Everything keeps going back to days of thunder. Yeah, man, gosh, and you feel sorry for Bonnet here because I thought, I honestly thought Allison, Bonnet, Bodine, and Earnhardt was the four best cars. And if they would have all been out there together, you know, with the race progressed, I don't know what would have happened, but I, I'm pretty sure that Bonnet and uh, Allison both had legitimate shots, and Bonnet may have had the best car. Uh, he he was the one that had driven around everybody, and he got to the front, and his car looked pretty stout, uh, and then this happens. Yeah, and, you know, later on, well, we'll get to the gas part later on, but, you know, if you've got three or four cars pushing – who knows what happens then? Oh yeah, absolutely. So that we we have that the big big deal with Bonnet's car stuck in the second gear. So he has to go behind the wall. Um, Kyle Petty and Poncho Carter they have a, a, a crash on lap eighty two. Uh, Poncho's Carter's car his it's tore up pretty bad. Petty's able to continue. 
a lot of cautions here. I mean, early in the race, which kind of surprising back you know, to have that many cautions just back to back to back to back at Daytona. And, and all of them were just one or two cars. Nothing was, you know, they hadn't had a big wreck or anything at this point. Just a lot of little, little wrecks. Yeah, just something where they couldn't get back in time to keep it green. Then uh, we're back to green on lap 89. Bodine Earnhardt out front. Um, and then <laughs> I go to possibly the most entertaining moment uh, of this entire broadcast, brought to you by the immortal Chris Kotomaki. Uh, my friends in the truck say that this good-looking lady reminds them of Chicago Bears quarterback Jim McMahon. Actually, it's Kathy Bodine, the wife of the man leading the race. Kathy, what are you doing up here? Well, Chris, I'm keeping laps the best I can. Okay, let me ask you something. Who is Jeff concerned mostly about right now? Well, there's still a long ways to go in this race, and several cars are running pretty darn good. Uh, I'm not going to counter an art out. He's having one heck of a week, and he's, I think he's about the one to contend with. But Elliot's still sitting back there just waiting. Okay, wife of Jeff Bodine, number five, out in front. Back to you. Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't know where to go with this, honestly, except to say, Chris Economaki said the guys in the truck. Anytime the guys in the truck say anything, it's not, it's something you probably don't want to repeat on national broadcast television. And either Kathy Bodine is um, a saint, or she did not hear what he initially said, because. I know most people would have probably flew off the pit box and clawed his eyeballs out for comparing them to, to Chicago Bears quarterback Jim McMahon. <laughs> I honestly, I had to, this. I know this was a NASCAR racing podcast, but I had to go back to watch this clip over and over. And I think that she has the headset on and is listening to the race, and she sees him there, and when he starts to turn the mic over, she takes it off long enough to catch the last of it about what she thought about the race, and then she starts talking. uh, Because I was waiting on her just to, like, bow, you know? I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you you hear that, you're like, what? Did did he say that she – I mean, maybe, I don't know, uh, Linda McMahon – not Vince McMahon, Ed McMahon, Jim McMahon. I I don't. Oh my God. And if you look at him, I mean, Kathy Bodine was not an unattractive woman. I don't know where no. this came from. <laughs> it was like she was she was a good looking woman. I don't know what the problem is. Well, it goes back to like you said, the guys in the truck. The guys in the truck ain't out there where people see their faces and hear their voices, so they can tell you all kinds of stuff to say, yeah, if, and then just sit back and laugh. I mean, if Roseanne Barr was married to Jeff Bodine at the time, and he said that she looked like Chicago Bears player William the Refrigerator Perry, okay, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If if she, if I mean, she but you still don't say that. Of you, you Jim still, McMahon, you, I would you, get it, but you still don't say no. that. <laughs> Even if you believe it, you don't say it. So no. thank you, Chris Economaki, for this, because I had no idea that this happened, and then, then we got that. So um, you never know what's going to happen when you listen to one of these old NASCAR races. Uh, Ken Schrader is driving the Red Baron Ford for Junie Donlovey. Uh, he blows up on lap 93. Caution is out. Waltrip's window net. It comes out. It messes up again. And then I've rewatched this a couple of times. 
I've tried to figure out what happened, but th- that's one thing with the, with what we know now and having tickers and all this crap that we, we could figure out what happened. But A.J. Foyt gets penalized for passing the pace car under caution. The officials hold him on pit road by standing in front of the car. A.J.'s not too happy, so he hits the official <laughs> a little bit. I mean, just nudges him. He don't, you know, just hits him a little bit just to let him know he's not happy. Uh, Chris Konomaki trying to get to the bottom of things. Um, we th- then we hear that Foyt was actually not penalized the lap. What what NASCAR said at this time is that Foyt and uh, it was the seventy five Rick Wilson was it Rick Wilson and the seventy five car. There was three cars that yeah. they they penalized for this. They say that when the sh- caution comes out for Schrader, that all three of these cars illegally passed the pace car. Well, what happens? When the caution is waived, because there's no pit road speed limits back then, and NASCAR actually bans this from... In 1989, they they say you can't do this no more. When the caution came out, the leaders jump into the pits before they come to the line to take the caution flag so they can pit when the field has to slow down because the pace car comes out of the pits and they'll pick them up on the back stretch. So if the leaders pit... Right when the caution comes out, it gives them an advantage. Um, but the so Foyt and these other guys don't pit, and and Waltrip, that this is what I was trying to figure out because Waltrip don't pit either. He doesn't get penalized, <clears throat> and the others do. And I don't know if NASCAR got confused, but I have to think unless Foyt and these other guys was behind another one of the lead cars that happened to stay out and i don't know where it's hard to tell watching the broadcast where everybody was the only thing i can figure is they were either behind another car that did stay out or they actually passed them when they went on to pits and nascar got confused well andy can do you have any idea what happens here i have no earthly clue because they're they're sitting there holding him and he's bumping them and he's revving it up and you can see the exhaust and I, I I believe it might have been Hobbs said he or Dobbs said he was barking had the car barking at him or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's crazy. Uh, we we don't really know what happens there, uh, but then they say that his oh he's not actually penalized the lap that that he gained the lap on the field so he's on he's on the he's on the right lap so the, the they're happy for a minute and then we we actually hear no he is down a lap so. I don't know. It, he's but, up. He's down. He's up. He's, yeah, he's down. Up, he's he's, up, up, he's, he's right. Down. He's in Formula One. Now he's back in NASCAR. Uh, so we we went green and we go almost right back to another caution. Eddie Burchwell's engine goes out. Squire calls him a backmarker. I, I mean, at least you know back then they would admit it. You, you wouldn't hear him say today. Well, the double zero car, you know, that back marker, you just, they don't do that. So Ken Squire just calls a spade a spade. Eddie Bearswell was a back marker that day. And so no big deal. So we go back to caution again, and then we come out of caution and uh, we have a few laps actually ran. And then we have the, the, the other big turning point of the race. Up in turn three. Joe Rutman has gone back to each other left. Harry Kim almost went up. Haley Armbrough's in it. Did Elliott get through or not? I think Elliott's been tagged. I thought I saw Bill Elliott. There's the Harry Gant car. I think Elliott is just to the right of your screen. I thought I saw him slide to the grass, and I believe that may be him there. 
There's the Kelly Arborough car, and there's the end of Joe Rutland's car. Badly smashed. Bill Elliott's car is down there on the grass. Boy, he really took a lick, Joe Rutland did. Joe. And then Harry Dent came along and ran up on the side, almost turned. Ran over it. Yes, almost turned the car over. So we, uh, we have a big crash here on lap 117. Neil Bonnet loses a wheel and triggers the crash. Bonnet's out. Rutman's out. Yarborough, Baker, Gant, they're all out. Yeah, Gant almost flipped over hitting um, Rutman's car. And I, one thing, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be too critical because, I mean, back then everybody raced. You know, Dill Bonnet was 12, 10, 12 laps down at this point. He had one of the best cars. They, they take him into the garage. They get him fixed. And I did notice before this wreck actually happened, he was really mixing it up with the leaders. And I thought that he was going to take out um, one of the leaders right out of the restart. And he didn't. And, and then he kind of faded back just a little. And then he does wind out, you know, causing this big wreck, which it wasn't because he'd done something aggressive. The wheel broke, but I was kind of questioning Bonnet when I was watching him on that one restart there. I was like, God, he's racing really hard to be that many laps down. But back then they just raced, I guess that I, I, I'm on this mentality now of, of being a brainwashed fan for as long as I have, I guess, where if anybody's racing and they're, they're they shouldn't be racing. I just, I think what, what, what's wrong with them? Andy, did you notice that? Yeah, I noticed that too. And by today's standards, like you say, it, it seems odd, weird. You know, he's twelve laps down. Why are you even? Bought, you know, you should just be out there cruising around. You know, making sure you get points. But back then, like I say, if they was out there, it didn't matter what place the person was that was to the left or the right of them. They want to pass them. They want to beat you. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the name of the game. They they wanted to run hard when they was out there and i mean they, he still is out there for his sponsors i guess so if you're running with the leaders you're going to get uh, you're still going to be on tv and uh, during the caution we get another chris economaki uh jim and we will turn it over to mr economaki well i can give you a little something of your souvenir hunter they just scissored this off in the field yarbrough's car they're working down there with what we call a mexican speed wrench that's a sledgehammer trying to get things straightened out Mexican speed wrench. <laughs> um, let me say this. I am a redneck, and I have heard many, many descriptions for things, but never have I heard a sledgehammer called that. I don't know where he came up with that, but it's probably the boys in the truck again. <laughs> yeah. Miss, well, the boys in the truck said this is a Mexican speed wrench. Oh, <laughs> Lord. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> The boy in the track is going to get you fired. Today, they would have him, you know, crucified on CNN oh, before the weekend was up. Uh, it's just funny, and it, 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 it's funny. We're not, we are not prejudiced at all. We, 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 we hate everybody equally. That's what I'm saying. Yes. No, we, but I mean, it's at the end of the day when you see this stuff, it's so, it's, it's like. We weren't offended by everything in 1986. This is so refreshing. You can say whatever you want to. It's okay. Some, If you don't like it, don't watch it. If you don't like it, don't listen to it. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to start a race. Well, it, it's just funny. Well, like you say, back then, well, I mean, even, you know, later than this, there were just certain phrases you said and nobody thought nothing about it. And, you know, then all of a sudden, 
it's like we've hit that. What was that movie, Idiocracy? We've started to get into it now. Yeah, a little bit. So, okay, we have that. We've had the big wreck there. We get a, a restart on lap 126. Grant Adcock spins out. We get another caution. He don't hit anything. Earnhardt and Bodine, after out of this caution, because this was a quick caution, they're, they're trying to drive away from the field. Really, it settles down to basically Earnhardt and Bodine just got away. I don't know how they got away as easily as they did, but they were good. And uh, Labonte and Waltrip and um, Sterling Marlin had a – God, he had a good – he's Haas Ellington. I think this has maybe helped put Sterling on the map. He was he – he gave that a good ride. And Rick Wilson in the four car, they was all running good. But Earnhardt and Bodine just drive away. And as we get 50 – we're down to the last 50 laps – and Andy, it looks like the scene is set. It's Bodine Earnhardt round two. The day before in the Bush race, the Grand, or Grand National race, they had went at it, and Earnhardt came out on top, and and they were mad at each other over that. They were mad at each other over the 125 race, and you you just have to think if you're watching this race right then, you know these two guys <laughs> apparently have a problem with each other. They don't like each other too much. I I know what happens, so. Uh, you know, you know what happens, but it, just sitting there thinking, you know, the visions of Sugar Plum dancing in my head. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my God, if the, if the, if this wouldn't have come down to gas mileage, just this would have been Petty Pearson again. We would have been cry- or or, or uh, Yarborough and uh, Allison. It, we would have, we may have had that again here in 1986. God, that, that's what I'm thinking. With 50 laps to go, uh, even though I know what's going to happen, I'm thinking, good lord, this is going to be awesome. Honestly, through the the first time I watched this back, like I say, this come out when we was like six. So, you know, I had done forgot all about it. So I'm watching it, and I'm trying not to spoil it for myself. And you see these two get out, and I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, okay, who's in third? Because, like you said, that's who you're expecting to win the race because these two guys are going to take each other out. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly what you think. So the, the race is starting to wind down. Um, and then we start hearing about fuel mileage. And God, I don't like fuel mileage race. I know it's part of NASCAR and it's part of the sport. I just don't like fuel mileage. Uh, Bodine pits on lap 159 from the lead. Earnhardt comes in on lap 160. Uh, Bobby Hill Jr. is having a oh, – he was up for – I forgot about him. He's racing. He has a good race. He's, he's one of the leaders. He misses his pit. He has to come back around. That kind of wipes him out of contention for the win. Uh, Tim Richmond, he goes behind the wall and all of this. Terry Labonte hangs it out until lap 165, so you know he's pretty much good on gas. Um, and did you notice something about Labonte? I, I, I don't know if I didn't see the ticker on the rest of them or what, but they did a two-tire stop right then and filled it up with gas, and it was 17 seconds. I had forgot how much faster we have gotten now on pit stops oh, yeah. versus then. <laughs> Yeah, I know, uh, and it was a good stop. It was a clean stop. It's just the technology we, and then the emphasis that we put on pit road and pit, you know, pit crews, and that's all they do is pit a car. So, you know, he is in and out and has a good stop. Um, Waltrip stays out. He always was good with gas mileage. He gets the lead for a lap or two. Uh, Bodine rotates back to the lead on lap one sixty seven. So we got 25 laps to go. Earnhardt's pitted one lap later than Bodine. Labonte's pitted a few laps later than them. Waltrip's pitted a lap or two later than Labonte. So just 
from looks of it, you would think, okay, Waltrip and Labonte can make it. Um, Earnhardt should be able to make it, and Bodine is the one that pitted first, so he's going to have to save some gas. At least that's what you would think from when they pitted. Definitely, because you can see, you know, in the closing laps, he, who was it? Was, was it Ned? No, no, it wasn't Ned. It was Benny Parsons, I think, it was behind him, and he was actually trying to slow up so he could draft off of him, and Parsons kept slowing up, and he's like, well, what are you two doing? Yeah, Benny and Phil Parsons were, they were, it, it was kind of weird because I'm sure they were trying not to interfere, but at the same time, they'd s- slowing down so much that Parsons and Parsons, the law firm of Parsons and Parsons caught up with the the two leaders. And, and what do you do? Do you just ride around at half speed or try to pass them? So they had that dilemma. And then we get this uh, pit road interview talking about the um, fuel fuel strategy. I'm with Richard Childress, Dale Earnhardt's car owner. He, he pulled up on Jeff Bodine and now he's just sitting there, Richard. What is he doing? Well, they slowed down about a second. But we just want to try to get some good mileage right now out of the car. Uh, are you telling him what to do or is he running his own race? We told him to get up there and just draft and take it easy right now. He's just drafting. Is this going to be a last lap scenario? Well, we hope we can all go that far. Okay, Richard Childress concerned about it. Puts it down across the road to Mike Joy and Jeff Bodine's pit. Bodine is just one bit away from Childress and his crew. Gary Nelson, the race pace has slowed down by about a second a lap. Why? Well, we uh, definitely want to conserve our tires. We don't care too much about leading these laps along here, but we'd sure like to lead that last one. And Earnhardt, Dale doesn't want to pass us. He wants to run second and try and get us on the last lap, so we feel like we can cool our tires as best we can. Uh, don't tell him, but we're, maybe we can lull him into running a little slower pace, and uh, we'll try everything we can to, to beat him on the last lap. Well, they've got the stopwatches too, of course. What about fuel mileage? Could you go the way without a problem? The fuel is going to be close. Uh, we feel we can make it. We're not, you know, we're going to gamble on that. Uh, if a caution came out, we'd put in a few gallons, but we've really got some tires that we'd rather have on the car. I think uh, the stretch along green has caused our left side tires to wear down, and we haven't had a chance to change them. So if only we could get these four on, I think we'd be the strongest car out there. But will you try to slow them down even more? Well, there's no way Dale's going to pass us. Uh, we could stop practically. He'd probably follow us into the pits, but uh, we, we are slowing the pace down. We're trying to lull him, and obviously uh, he's pretty smart. He knows what we're doing. We've all raced in and seen a lot of races here, all decided on the last lap, but it's evident this will be another. There we go. We hear from Gary Nelson and um, Richard Childress. Andy, it definitely is cat and mouse. So like you said, they were they were trying to slow each other down. Um, Earnhardt did not want to pass Bodine. And honestly, you would think that Earnhardt would be getting better gas mileage, half-tracking it, and getting the draft from Bodine. So pitting a lap later and doing all that, I would think he looked – you would think he would be in pretty good shape on gas. Yeah. I, the thing I noticed is when he come out, I guess because they was trying to fill it, make sure that they got it filled up with the gas, he was so far back. Um, I've often wondered if he wasn't pushing it just a little bit too hard to get up there. And then once he got up there, it was too late to save whatever he had. That's true, because one thing I did not mention, uh, and I'm glad you just brought that up, when he came out behind Bodine, he was what, four, was he four, he was four seconds behind Bodine, I think, yeah, out of the he, pits. And he, he ran him down. He ran three him down. seconds just in nothing. Yeah, and he ran him down without any drafting help. He, he just mowed yeah. him down. So we knew 
I mean, I would have, right there, I would almost think you would say Earnhardt had the fastest car because he was able to run Bodine down pretty significantly, pretty quickly. And maybe he did push it a little too hard just trying to get back to him. Yeah, or, maybe, you know, maybe, I, I don't know if he was pushing too hard to get there or if Bodine was just slacking, you know, to make sure he had enough gas or combination, but it just didn't work out for Earnhardt this time. Yeah, so we're, we're down to it. Cat and mouse, Bodine slows down, Earnhardt won't pass him, few laps to go, and I figure the best way to bring it home is to let uh, let CBS and Ken Squire bring it home. Four laps to go to decide it today. Bodine is in first. What do you think, Matt? It's, it's looked like Earnhardt's game to play here for yeah. him to shoot his shot. He's in the position, no question about it. We've seen Cale Yarbrough do it so many times. Now they're saying Earnhardt may have to come in for gas. Well, here comes Benny Parsons. They slowed down so much that Benny, well, not that Benny isn't running that well, but, you know, they're holding him up now, well, the, I, the leaders are. I wouldn't want a lap car in there. There's Earnhardt's crew standing out ready to, to come in. And He's Earnhardt coming is in. coming in. Hail Absolutely Earnhardt. out of gas. Earnhardt is coming in. The question is, can Bodine go the distance? Does Gary Nelson know enough about fuel economy, uh, fuel economy to make it work? Let's go to Chris Economy. This is going to cost Dale Earnhardt the race. He's overshot his pitch. They have to pull the car back in order to meet the rules. He just needs a couple of quarts. He's got on his way, and it looks like Mr. Bodine is going to be the beneficiary. Mike Joy, take it. Gary Nelson talking to his driver right now as the left wind down. Well, Whitley gets off the microphone here. Jubilation a moment ago in the Rick Hendrick Motorsports pit. Something's wrong on that car as it came out of the pits. Something is amiss on Earnhardt's car. He has struggled so long, so hard. He blowed her up. He could have been the haste. In the haste coming out yeah, of the Dropped the clutch and broke something, I'm sure. 198 complete. Jeff Bodine out in front. Ken, I know that feeling. In 1963, I was leading the race here, ran out of gas, had to come in, get some, but I did wind up in third place. Quickly to Mike Joy. Gary Nelson, two laps to go. Can you run the distance? We're not stopping. If, we, if it runs out, we'll, we're, we'll coast. Don't lower the dice, Ken. Well, Jeff Bodine stopped one lap earlier than Dale Earnhardt. If Dale Earnhardt ran out of fuel, it's put... God, I mean, Jeff we'll stay right here with Bodine. Now, this race is run over. If we're not able to get an immediate interview with him, we will give it to you at halftime of the NBA game of the Celtics and the Lakers today. Coming down, white flag is out. Jeff Bodine into his final lap. Just praying. And we listen now as that car goes into turn number one for a burst. Anything from that motor that might spell disaster for Bodine. Remember, working 13 seconds back now, Terry Labonte. From the in-car camera, you may see Jeff Bodine win the Daytona 500. You may be riding with him. He's in the back straightaway. What a sensation, Ned. Well, that's his field gauge. His field gauge is the one on the right. See that little gauge that's flickering on the right-hand side of the dashboard with the F under it? I'm sure that's probably his fuel gauge, pressure gauge, at the moment, doesn't see it flickering there. It goes flickering when it goes into the turn. And it goes into the turn, he's getting mighty close. See, the needle's going down now. You're riding down for the finish, checkered flag is out, and you are with Jeff Bodine as he wins the 1986 Daytona 500. Bodine has done it, CBS camera on board.
the Rick Hendrick Racing Stable out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Jeff Bodine from Chemung, New York has won the Daytona 500 at halftime of the NBA game. We'll be back with you to interview Jeff Bodine today. For Ned Jarrett, David Hobbs, Mike Joy, and Chris Economaki, I'm Ken Squire saying so long from the Daytona International Speedway. Bodine, still in tears, said he wasn't surprised about this win. Not surprised, just happy. The, the Lord's been too good to me today. I'll tell you, Rick Henrik, Gary Nelson, the whole Levi Garrett Exxon crew, my family, Matthew Berry, I said I'd be here to say hi. I love you. The final standings, Bodine first, Terry Labonte second, Waltrip third for the third year in a row, Bobby Hill in fourth, Benny Parsons came across fifth. In the sixth position was Ron Bouchard, followed by Florida's Rick Wilson, then came Rusty Wallace, Sterling Marlin. And there we go, Andy Waddell. That was uh, the last few laps of the 1986 Daytona 500, and man, uh, <laughs> it was... You, it definitely kept you on the edge of your seat, even though Bodine wound up being all by himself because Earnhardt runs out of gas. Bodine pitted a lap before him. You think you have to think he's going to run out of gas. Oh yeah. I mean, just the common math out of it. You, you'd think he was going to run out of gas or at least be having to coast the last lap at the very least. I mean, cause you know, it, I don't know. I don't know how he got that much out of it, but he did. And the funny thing is, to this day, the picture of him holding the trophy from the Daytona 500 is still in the media center. And there's only like maybe 12 pictures through the years that they've got in there, and his is one of them. <laughs> wow. So uh, it was a um, well, Gary Nelson. I'll say this: Gary Nelson was known to get good gas mileage out of cars, and. Uh, he done something to get Bodine a little bit better gas mileage. And, and honestly, with the 13-second lead, if he would have ran out of gas on the going into three, he probably still could have won the race just coasting. Oh, yeah. They, well, you heard him on the – you heard his, uh, his chief there on the radio saying, you know, hey, we're going to go for it. If he runs out, we're going to coast. The heck with it. We ain't, we ain't got nothing to lose. Yeah, I wonder if Earnhardt I – I guess – I mean, surely – he, he must have sputtered, but I, I don't know though. He was still right there against Bodine. They, I, I, that's one thing. Maybe I hadn't done enough research on, but I never could find a clear picture. Did he sputter, or did they just tell him that he's not going to make it? Because it looked like he was still right against Bodine until you heard him say when Benny Parsons caught up and goes in. You you could see that he was slowing down to pit then, but. Was he slowing down to pit, or was he actually sputtering out of gas at that point? I don't know. You know, I I was looking at the same thing because when, like you say, when he's up there, it's like he's catching up, and then I don't know if somebody got on the radio and said, pit now, you're going to run out before you get back, or what, but it's like all of a sudden, right before they get to pit road, he backs off, cuts across, and it seems like he's still under power when he goes through there. I don't know. I mean, he he might have been coasting, but it, it just seemed like he was still under par. Yeah, I mean, the the pit crew was already up on the wall. I, I don't know. That's uh, maybe somebody can answer. Maybe I'm not just figured out or saw this. You know what exactly happened? But I still don't exactly know if he ran out of gas or if they just told him he had to pit because he's going to run out of gas. Well, if anybody can find the answer, put it on the Facebook page, and uh, we'll research it and share it with the rest of the world. Yeah, that's right. So, 
Oh, man. 1986 Daytona 500. This, obviously, I didn't start really. I mean, I watched races like we talked about. We watched races. I watched races ever since I can remember. But I didn't start taping races because we got a VCR, I think, in 87. So I started taping NASCAR races that I've still got VHS, the original Masters, from a lot of races from 88 onward. And, um, so I, I remember all the, like, I've got all the Daytona 500s. So when I was trying to think of 86, I knew what happened. I knew Arnold ran out of gas, but on wins. And I thought, eh, it probably wasn't that good of a race, but then I'll rewatch it. And I think, you know, this was actually a, it, it wasn't, it was different, but yeah, it, it, it wasn't was, a barn burner, it, no, but, but, you know, I, but it was, I didn't fall asleep during it. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So I guess we should just jump into the end of the show post-race awards. We're going to try to do these every week. Maybe we'll add an award or two here or there, but, uh, my, Andy, who is your driver of the race? <laughs> this, this hurts me to even say this, but I'd have to say it was Bodine because when you win a race against Earnhardt, you know, and you two, you're the only two right and more or less racing, you beat Earnhardt, you got to be the driver. Yeah, I mean, usually the winner of the race is going to be the driver of the race, and uh, I had to go with Bodine here too because at the end of the day, he, him, Earnhardt, Bonnet, and Allison, from what I could tell, had the four best cars. So it would have had to have been one of them four, and two of them went out really early. So. It would have had to have been him or Earnhardt, and he done what he had to do to win the race. So I'll give the driver of the race to Bodine also. What was your critical moment of the race? Like, what did you think was the game-changing moment of the race? The the one I thought, honestly, I think Bonnet, when he had the shifter problem and took him plumb out of the race, because like I say, even when he comes back out, he's racing with the leaders till he wrecks later on, but... He had a car good enough. He could have been up there in contention with him with the other two. So I believe that, to me, that was the critical moment. Yeah, I, I actually have it a tie because I can't decide whether it was Allison going out so early or Bonnet with the shifter because those two cars were the only other the only other two cars that I saw that could compete with Earnhardt and um, Bodine. So it had to be one of them two. So I'm just going to be a a wuss and say it's a tie um the what did they say award for this week i am going to have to surely this is not going to be a debate between us would it would it also be for you chris economaki comparing kathy bodine to jim mcmahon believe it or not i am going to debate with this one because when we mentioned the award i i kind of was thinking a different way and I can't remember his name, but Kyle Petty's crew chief. They are interviewing him, and you can go back and find Eddie the clip, Wood? I'm sure. Eddie Wood? And or Lynn Wood? One of the Wood brothers. Something. Yeah, one of the Wood brothers, yeah. They're interviewing him, and I swear it's like they're talking to the coach off of uh, Waterboy. And I'm like, what did he say? What the heck? Oh, so that's where that's who I give that award I, I got to. You. But so the McMahon one is it's good too. It was a literal. What did he say? Because you didn't understand it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm redneck, and I I know some people from the mountains that when they talk, their lips don't move, and I can understand them, and I still ain't got a clue what he said. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so most surprising thing about the race to you, Andy? What was the most surprising thing on the watch? <sighs> I don't know. It, it, there was a lot of surprising things. I was 
the, I guess my most surprising thing was, like you said, Earnhardt pits a lap, a whole lap later, and still runs out of gas three laps before Bodine, and or two laps before Bodine. I just, I, I don't know. I that, that right there, I'd still have to. Somebody needs to tell me what happened there that made him use that much more gas, or if he actually did. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm actually going to go with Bill Elliott not being a factor because of how much he dominated in 85 for him just not to, he never was, he was kind of, you know, he was fourth, fifth, sixth, but he was never up front in that race. He was immediately shuffled back and he never was a factor. And then he was in that wreck. So, and then he got spun out on pit road too, which didn't help, but he, I, I, all the way up until that point, I don't think he was a factor anyway to win unless he was just hanging it back. So that that's what I'm going to go with that. I could see that. Um, throwback moment of the race. So what was your, uh, you know, feel good throwback moment of the race, Andy? This had nothing to do with the race. And I know this is going to sound crazy. It had nothing to do with the race. Wasn't even in the race, but I always remember the old clips where they used to show you how fast the cars would go. And the clip they had there where Ned Jarrett was driving his car at 55 and I think they had Labonte come by at 200 miles an hour yeah. with the camera and, you know, showing all that just to give people an idea how fast they really are going. Yeah. That was, that was my, th- you know, they used to do that all the time to help, you know, introduce people to NASCAR. And I don't know, that was, that was my throwback moment. I'll go with uh, the Reverend Hal Marchman. I already talked about him. Uh, race rating. So we're going to go on a, a sliding scale of uh, zero to one hundred. Just so that way, we'll have plenty of options as the season goes on. Maybe we'll, you know, once we get all the races in, we'll be able to rank the nineteen eighty six races. So on a zero to one hundred scale, Andy Waddell, what would you rate the race? I'd have to go with a seventy, and the only reason I'm going that low is because I'm a Earnhardt Mark, and he didn't win. Okay, I actually went seventy-five because um, I thought it was a it wasn't a bad race. Uh, it was an it was a strategic race. They had a lot of cautions that kept slowing it down and dragging things out, and then they had the one big wreck, and then Dagone Bonnet and Bobby Allison both go out of the race and. That's the only other two cars that I think really had a good shot at winning, and so uh, that that drags the rating down a little bit. But we do have another rating that we can throw in here: entertainment factor. When you go back and rewatch this race, despite what you think about the actual race, what was your entertainment factor rewatching the race on a zero this might, scale? This might be a biased thing, but I'm gonna go with like ninety five because. <laughs> I never lost interest. I watched the whole thing, and the rewatch we had had the old commercials and stuff, and I, I watched the whole thing. I never got bored. I never was, you know, thinking, well, let me look on my phone and see what's going on over here. I, I watched the whole thing through and then watched it through again, and I, I, it never bored me. I, I enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah, so the, so the, we have a distinction here. The, we, we, we try to give the actual analysis of – the race itself, but then how much it were entertained and maybe we'll put the two together and come up with a, a score. So we both, we were both entertained. I said 90, you say 95. So we, th- it's worth a watch people. If, if you've got four hours and, and you want to get nostalgic, um, listen to this podcast. We've told you what happened. We give you all the behind the scenes. So go watch the race and tell us what you think. So are we off base? Did you hate the race? Did you like it better? 
Find, tell us what you see that we didn't see in the race. And uh, we're going to read, if we get enough, we'll read some comments on the next show as a lead-in to the next race, which is, oh, this is another reason I picked 86, Andy. The next race is the Richmond Fairgrounds race that had the wild finish between Earnhardt and Walter. Oh, God bless America, and this is probably the, I'd say this is probably about the time where my entire family started hating Walter. <laughs> well, this is probably the time when my entire family started hating Earnhardt. So it was definitely See, we're, a dividing we're building moment. bridges together. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was, uh, but the, the race that we're going to watch uh, for the next show, Richmond, it, I have not watched it yet. I've seen the ending plenty of times. I know what happens. But the race, um, I'm real interested to go back and rewatch that race because the Richmond Fairgrounds, my God, going from Daytona in 200 miles an hour to the the tiny little Richmond Fairgrounds with the 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 guardrails and the, the the that is a nostalgia trip. I've seen a little bit of the race already as we've getting ready for the next show. I haven't rewatched all of it. I've watched a few laps just to see the um, the old fairgrounds. It brings back a lot of memories, and then. Just to see how much those cars, they're bouncing off each other. They're sliding. There's, there's dirt flying. There's tire smoke. It's, uh, it's going to be a completely different experience on the next show. It's going to be a humdinger. All right. So, uh, once again, um, tell us what you like about the show. Tell us what you don't like about the show. We're open to criticism. This is the first time we have podcasted a show in a couple of years uh so we're trying to shake off the rust a little bit hopefully we'll 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 do you a good service we we want you to know the behind the scenes we're going to post a bunch of clips on our facebook page so a lot of the newspaper articles that i cite i actually have posted on the facebook page already so go to the facebook group racing through time uh nascar retrospective podcast our youtube channel is rtt project uh, Twitter, you can follow me personally at OPR Word, O P R W O R D. That is for my On Pit Road, um, my personal page. You can follow the podcast at RTT Project. So that'll be for the uh, for the show, and uh, for all your motorsports news and information, read onpitroad.com. Follow us on Twitter at On Pit Road, Andy. Final thoughts before we uh, wrap the first show up. Just, uh, uh, I'm enjoying this. I like watching the old racing, and this is far back enough to where I remember bits and pieces, but it's still going to be a surprise to me as much as it is for people that wasn't even alive then. Yeah, and uh, once again, one of the emphasis, you know, things I want to emphasize is I really hope some of the newer generations of fans can can go back and rewatch these old races and maybe pick up some information they didn't know, find the new appreciation for the older stuff. Because as we get older, maybe we're just nostalgic for this. And that's one thing I really wanted to see. I want to see if maybe I see 1986 through rose-colored glasses. There might be races we watched that we were like, God, this did suck. And it's probably going to happen. But it didn't for the Daytona 500. And there was plenty of interesting things going on around the race, the race itself, and then, of course, the commentary. Maybe the commentary all year will at least give us some <laughs> entertainment, whether the races do or not. Um, most of the uh, we you can find almost all the races on YouTube. Some of them are not in their entirety. 
I, I don't think some of them are available in their entirety, but we're going to do the best we can. I know the rich, I know the next two or three races, Richmond, Atlanta, Darlington. I, I believe that all of them races are pretty much full races on YouTube. So we will be able to, to hit, not just having to hit the high points, we'll be able to go flag to flag like we did at Daytona, bring you some audio clips and tell you what's going on behind the scenes uh, as it goes to the races. And we will hit our next show with the show in Richmond, Virginia. So for the Hot Pocket, Andy Waddell, I am Ricky Wittenberg, and you've been listening to Racing Through Time, a 1986 NASCAR podcast. <laughs>